Axios Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, SoftBank shafts startups and Trump's Twitter threats. But first, Australia on fire. So sometimes you hear Democrats say that America is the only country where climate change is a debate rather than an accepted fact. But that's not entirely true. It's also been a hotly contested issue in Australia, where current Prime Minister Scott Morrison won election last year with a coal-positive climate change skepticism message that sounded a lot like President Trump, with whom he has something of an international bromance. But Morrison may soon have no choice but to change course, as his country is in flames after its hottest and driest year on record. Nearly 15 million acres have burned so far. 24 people are dead, 1,300 homes have been lost, with countless more threatened, and local ecologists estimate that half a billion animals are dead. And speaking of animals, listen to this. So that's not an actual siren. That's an Australian magpie, a type of bird that mimics sound. And right now, it's not hearing much else to mimic. Obviously, what's happening in Australia is a human and environmental catastrophe and comes on the heels of the 2018 wildfires in California and last year's massive burns of the Brazilian rainforest. All three cases involved countries where leaders tend to treat climate change as a punchline. But the question now for Australia is if the flames have finally reached the political tipping point. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with The Washington Post's Andrew Friedman. But first, this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Andrew Friedman, the deputy weather editor at the Washington Post. Can we just talk a little bit here? There have been wildfires before in Australia. These are obviously much larger. What can we attribute just the breadth and the ferocity of this to? So Australia has never really been as hot and dry at the same time as they have been recently. 2019 was their hottest and driest year. December was one of their top two hottest ever months. It had their two hottest days ever on record for the country in December. So you've had just tinderbox dry conditions throughout the vegetation in southeastern Australia in particular. And that really primes the situation for any spark that comes along could create some sort of explosive fire development. Speaking of any spark, we don't have any stories or any explanation yet on what technically started this, right? Whether it be a lightning strike or camper lighting a a campfire. We don't actually know that yet, do we? Well, we know that arson has been involved, is suspected in several of the fires, which is not all that unusual. Is that what's behind this huge outbreak of fires? No, but that is involved in in potentially setting ablaze a couple of these fires. Others are lightning. Others are started by other fires themselves. There's a term in Australia in some of these warnings that is actually really frightening, and um, I hadn't seen it before, which is known as an ember attack, where in a period of strong winds, some of these fires have been sending out burning embers miles out ahead of the fire. And what that does is essentially cause spot fires ahead of it that can then turn into major fires. And then the fires can merge into what you'd call a mega fire. Jonathan Swan, who works here at Axios and is from Australia, he texted me this morning. He said that, that what he's hearing from family and friends is one of the big issues there. And it's not surprising is the firefighters there simply do not know how to handle something this large. It, it's just beyond 
on their their scope of training. What happens next here? Is there a way to actually stop these outside of Pray for Rain? Outside of Pray for Rain, no. It's likely that these fires, and and this week is actually a better week weather-wise, but outside of appreciable rainfall, this is not going to end anytime soon. What they're hoping for is that they won't get many more days of extreme to catastrophic wildfire risk they're not going to put these out. They've been asking for more aerial support. They've been asking for more people to come to the front lines. Australia has a lot of volunteers in their firefighting force, more than the United States does, because the U.S. has both a federal force and a state force. And there have been some wildfire firefighting planes flown from California to Australia, although one of the weird things is that because of Australia's fire season started so early, California was on fire at the same time that southeastern Australia was. So they weren't able to call in help from the companies and the people that they'd normally call in help from. From your perspective, how's the Australian government responded from on a qualitative basis? Has it been doing the right thing so far? On a qualitative basis, the federal government, meaning the government led by Scott Morrison, has been a disaster. I've been talking to people in Australia of, of various political persuasions, and they're telling me, you know, he's not shown a proper amount of empathy. He arrived in an area that had been decimated by fires, and the people basically heckled him to the point where he got back in his motorcade and left. And you guys actually, the Washington um, Post, for folks who want to see it, there's actually a video of that up on your site. Yeah, there is. And, you know, if you look on the hashtag Scott for marketing, which is kind of what a lot of Australians derisively call him, because he used to be the head of tourism in Australia, you'll see a lot of kind of the ways that they think about him. Now, it's complicated because Morrison was reelected somewhat recently. He is very pro-coal development. He is very, I don't know that I'd call him a climate denialist. He's more skeptical of a lot of the mainstream science on climate and denies a lot of the linkages between climate change and these fires. So he's vulnerable on two points. He's vulnerable on not giving enough resources to firefighters and not being empathetic and being caught on vacation in Hawaii when this all started. Shamed into coming home and only coming home one day early. The state governments are really the ones that lead fire response in Australia, and they've been much more on the ball and been the people that Australians are looking to for leadership. But, you know, when I've asked Australians what they think of Morrison right now, they've basically said he doesn't speak for me. When we think about the big California wildfires from two years ago, that didn't seem to create any change in the political climate debate in the U.S. When we see what happened in Brazil, that does not appear at least to have made any political impact yet in Brazil, although maybe it's too early. Do you believe from what you've seen so far, and so there's some crystal ball gazing and some foreign policy, I guess, what we're seeing in Australia, is that going to actually change the conversation in Australia and make Australia more like Europe than like the U.S.? It's a very good question. I think that this could be the turning point for Australia just because this is so big and so dramatic in terms of the visuals and so many people are suffering and everybody knows somebody who is affected. However, you also have the influence of the Murdoch-owned press empire in Australia and they are really striking the tone similar to what President Trump said about California when he said, you know, they're not raking the forest enough. And in Australia, they're talking about how they are not doing 
prescribed burns because the environmentalists won't let them and they're not, you know, thinning out the forests and logging enough. So there are some similarities to how this played out in the United States. And the last three or four prime ministerial elections in Australia have turned on climate change to some degree. And I wouldn't be surprised if the next one did. We're expecting a pretty large protest to be mounted the end of this week uh, in Australia by those who want climate action. So it remains to be seen. I mean, I'm somebody who's a little bit pessimistic. Anything is going to change in countries that have really entrenched climate denial interests and such fossil fuel-based economy. Andrew Friedman, Deputy Weather Editor of The Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My final two, right after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the ProRata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is SoftBank, the Japanese investment giant known for its big bets in companies like Uber, Slack, and WeWork. What's new today is an Axios report that SoftBank has walked away from investing in several startups after having submitted term sheets and telling the companies that delays were only procedural. This matters for the companies not only because they lost out on hundreds of millions of dollars from SoftBank, but also because they lost an enormous amount of time, which is one of their most valuable resources. And for SoftBank, it's a huge reputational hit that will make it harder to invest in highly sought after companies. So why is this happening? There are two theories. One is that SoftBank simply doesn't have the money, or at least as much money today as it thought it would have when it signed the term sheets. The firm's been trying to raise its second $100 billion vision fund, but to date has been unable to hold even a first close from outside investors. The other theory is that this is shell shock from the WeWork situation, with SoftBank recalibrating its philosophy and risk appetite. Either way, it is a very bad look. And finally, President Trump over the weekend used Twitter to publicly threaten Iran, including a warning that the U.S. could target cultural sites in apparent violation of international law. This has prompted the usual calls for Twitter to pull the tweets and or ban Trump, believing that his threats of violence are in violation of the company's terms of service. Twitter, though, isn't playing along with the critics, instead relying on a policy of letting political leaders tweet things that it normally wouldn't allow other people to tweet. The tricky part here, though, is that last year, Twitter publicly announced a policy that could let it add warnings to tweets it deems to have violated its rules. So keep them up, but put a little warning sticker. So far, however, Twitter hasn't added any such warning to tweets from Trump or anyone else. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great national shortbread day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.